Did you all get a copy of uh, the outlines? Do you all have that? There should have been a booklet that you received on the way in, a spiral-bound booklet. You want to get one of those. You want to make sure as well that you got a copy of the book. Follow me by David Platt. Um, I tried to make the work booklet as extensive as possible. Um, it, it includes pretty much all the quotes that I'm going to read. A lot of the scripture references are in there as well. I did not include a whole bunch of fill-in-the-blanks so that you can write whatever you want to write in there. Anything that is helpful and instructive, you can just feel free to write that down and you don't have to feel like you're trying to keep up. At the outset, I I, want to say just how thankful and grateful I am for this opportunity uh, to speak with you men tonight. Um, it is, it is a great joy. It is also uh, a very humbling thing because as I look out across this room, I see so many of the men um, that I respect so greatly. Um, as I look across the room, I see the men that I call when I need help, when I need prayer, when I um, have questions. Um, so many men that I love, that I look up to, and I'm so glad that you are here. And I pray that This will be a helpful and a profitable time for us all. Tonight, we're going to cover three points. Tomorrow, we're going to cover four, and uh, we're going to work through it as quick as we can. Now, it is important that we occasionally meet like this, that we huddle up like this. It's important that we study God's Word together. It's important that we encourage one another because the fact is, I am not what I should be, and you are are definitely not what you should be. Um, The fact is, we all have blind spots. We all have blind spots, some of them larger than others, Mike Wolf, but the fact is, we all have blind spots. There you go. Um, And uh, uh, we all have areas where we do not see clearly. We do not see as we should, according to the truth of God's word. We do not see our sin as we should see it. We do not see our glorious Savior as we should see Him. We do not see God's calling on our life as men as clearly as we should. So we need the Word of God. We need the Spirit of God. We need the community of God to help us see and address and recognize these blind spots. But for what end? What is the end goal? What is the end game for what we do? Well, I'm happy to tell you from the start that we are not goalless, and we are not clueless, and we are not wandering around trying to figure out what we should be about. Our goal is the same goal that the Apostle Paul had that he described in Colossians 1. He said, him, referring to Christ, him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, here it is, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. We have a goal, and it is Christ. We want to see everyone, every man mature in Christ, complete in Christ, following Christ, glorifying Christ. We labor to this end. So here's where we're going. Here are the seven points. that we're going to be covering over, over the next couple days. Seven points uh, that are all reflected somehow and further explained in David Platt's book, Follow Me. 
Uh, For the remainder of the year at monthly follow-up meetings, we're going to further elaborate and uh, flesh out and follow up on these seven points. So it's not my job to explain the depths of every one of these points because we will continue to tease them up and and follow them out uh, over the coming months. And we're going to couch these seven points in football terminology. All right, and you can obviously see that from the picture, uh, from from what you already see on your outline. We're gonna we're gonna couch this in football terminology, which is dangerous. Which is dangerous because I need to let you know something. My career in the NFL was surprisingly short. Okay, um, you I know I know you would be surprised to know by looking at me that I am not a famous, well known football player. And so giving me the task of couching these points in football terminology puts me on dangerous ground, all right? And you will no doubt see my ignorance of the game of football, but it should prove funny for us all as well. And so that'll be a good thing. All right, so here are the points that we're going to unfold and unpack. Point number one, drafted. If you are a Christian, you have been drafted. You've been called by Christ to follow him. Point number two, team. If you are a Christian, you are on Jesus's team. You've been saved by him. You've been transformed by him to glorify him with all of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Point three is coach. If you are a Christian, Christ is your coach. Now listen, he's so much more than that. In fact, I'm reluctant to even just call him coach because he's the owner. He's the goal. He is the ultimate glory, but he's most certainly the head. He's the coach. He's the leader. Point number four is co-owner. If you are a Christian, you are made a co-owner, a co-heir with Christ. You're not just a team member. Christ makes you so much more. He makes you an adopted son of God, and we must understand this to rightly understand our salvation. Point number five is playbook. If you are a Christian, if you are a team member and a co-owner with Christ, you must understand the playbook. You must understand the coach's plans, the plays for your life, uh, the, the, the designs that the coach intends. In this analogy, the word of God is our playbook. It is absolutely essential for growth and godliness, for progress and Christ-likeness, that we would know the will of God for our lives. Point number six is team player. If you are a Christian, some of you are not going to like this, Christ calls you to be a team player, to love, to serve, to care about, to work with the fellow believers around you. You are a part of the team, but you are not the whole team, all right? You are part of the team, you're not the whole team, and it's essential that we understand our role within the bigger picture of God's plan. And then point number seven is end zone, end zone. If you are a Christian, you need to know where and what the end zone is. What's the goal? What's the point? What are we striving for? We need to have a vision for this life informed by a vision for the next life. And so tonight, we will cover the first three points, then tomorrow we'll cover the remaining four. Now to kick off most of the points that we're going to cover, I'm going to show a quick two to three minute video. And it in some way, listen, it in some way highlights or, or illustrates the points that we're going to be covering. Now, now the purpose of the video is a couplefold. Um, some of them are, are a little funny, and, and that's good. It, it's good to laugh. Some of them, again, really illustrate the point and drive it home. And maybe most importantly, it gives you just a little break from the monotony of the sound of my voice. Okay, and so we will, we will occasionally watch a little video as we intro our point. Now, the first point we're going to cover is drafted. And uh, I'm going to show you a video of Peyton Manning interviewing his younger brother, Eli Manning, right after Eli was the number one draft pick in the NFL in 2004. All right, and uh, so this is a 
this will work. Yep, here we go. Back here at Madison Square Garden, Peyton Manning, direct TV correspondent, joined by the number one pick in this year's NFL draft, Eli Manning. Eli, how's it going so far? It's really good. Just tell everybody here what it's like to be the number one pick in the 2004 NFL draft. Well, obviously, it's a great honor to be the number one pick. Uh, something that worked very hard to get to this position, and you know, you're, you're putting the name of a, a, a lot of great players. Uh, obviously, six years ago, it was a pretty good player, uh, Peyton Manning. But uh, you know, so it's a good, it's a great honor to be here. The great player six years ago. Eli, people talk about your older brother Peyton and your father Archie, and some people might say it's a negative to have the pressure to follow in their footsteps now joining the NFL. Do you think it's an advantage or do you think it's a disadvantage? Well, I think it's an advantage. I, I've tried to get as much information uh, from Peyton as for that and what you need to do to succeed in the NFL. Uh, taking advice about you know, watching film and, and preparing for games and how much work it actually takes. So obviously I'm going to have some pressure, but it's something I've been used to. Uh, you know, going to the same college as my dad did playing in the SEC where Peyton played you know, a few years before me. So uh, it's something I've dealt with a long time, and I think I'll, I'll deal with it you know, fine now. It's been rumored, uh, not verified, that you made the statement that although Peyton is a solid NFL quarterback, you feel that you are better looking than Peyton. Um, very bold statement on your part. Can you comment on this? Uh, it is a bold statement, and obviously that is my opinion, and I feel very strongly about that opinion. And uh, obviously from people who I've talked to, they feel you know, strongly about it also. Obviously you know, Peyton not, may not agree, but I don't think he's a, you know, a high person in ranking who can answer that type of question. It's also been reported, and obviously I couldn't believe it when I read it, was that you feel you have more natural talent than Peyton, and that's why Peyton has to study so much film, stay up till 2 in the morning to study film, because he doesn't have the same ability that you have. So can you verify whether you said this or not and report why you would have said this? Uh, well, I don't know if I said it, that in those exact words. I think uh, you know, when it comes to... Do you think that's true? Uh, I think it comes to athletic ability. Uh, I know I can beat him in basketball and ping pong and tennis and other sports, but uh, obviously one-on-one football, we have not played you know, since we were uh, six. And, and when I was six and he was 11, he beat me then, but you know, it wasn't really fair. Obviously, everybody wants to know what it's going to be like when you and Peyton have to finally play against each other. Uh, talk about, do you think you have a chance in the world to, to beat Peyton when you play against him and what those emotions will be like for you during that game? Uh, obviously, it'll be a, a unique experience, and um, you know, so it's, it's not like Peyton's there playing defense, you know, and he's playing cornerback on the other side. And I have to throw to him because if he was, I throw to that receiver every single time, and we would definitely win the game. But since he is playing quarterback, he's pretty good at that. Um, you know, it'll be fun, but it's gonna be different trying to you know root for the defensive lineman to go and, and, and sack Peyton, and, you know, give him an elbow and a cheap shot. Do you think Peyton will take it easy on you, or do you think he'll be telling his defensive lineman like the White Freeney and these guys probably the one of the best pass rushing games in the league to go after Eli. What do you think about that? Uh, you know, I think Payne will probably you know, give him you know, tips and, and know where my weak spots are and try to hit me and, you know, hard and give me some cheap shots. And, you know, I think he'll definitely uh, you know, try to you know, rub in the beating. Because I'm sure Payne definitely does know your weaknesses, I would say. Uh, I don't know. I, I, he didn't know everything about me. and uh, I, got some, I got a few little tricks up my sleeve preparing for him. Eli, best of luck to you. Congratulations on being the number one pick and uh, looking forward to seeing you play next year. Thanks a lot, Payne. Back to you in the studio. That's great. Uh, good. So obviously, though, it's uh, it's a little different being drafted by the NFL versus being drafted by the Lord Jesus Christ to be one of his disciples. And so in this first session, we're going to talk about some of the similarities, some of the differences. You can see on your outline, number one, in the NFL, 
You're drafted because of your hard work and talent, but not so with Christ. Christ does not choose based on our ability or our power. It's not an easy or insignificant thing to be drafted into the NFL. You work hard. You prove yourself on and off the field. You are evaluated, and if you are truly excellent, you might be drafted, but not so with Christ. Christ does not choose the strongest, the smartest, the fastest people to be on his team, and this is a humbling truth, but it is the truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, Paul writes, For consider your calling, my brothers, consider your drafting. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. If you are a Christian, if you have been called by Christ to follow him, you need to know something. You did not earn that privilege. You did not earn that privilege. You do not deserve to be on Christ's team. I do not deserve to be on Christ's team. I know that sounds hard and harsh, but it's true. None of us deserve to be saved. There will not ever be one person in heaven, in glory, who looks around and says, you know what? I deserve to be here. All right? It's not going to happen. Not one person in glory will ever say, I deserve to be here. Uh, in fact, Paul writes in the very next verse in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, and because of him... You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We are saved. We are brought into Christ through his work, his merit, his righteousness, his substitutionary death, his resurrection. Through him, we are made children of God. Number two, on your outline, in the NFL, when you are drafted, your loyalty is immediately transferred to your new team. Likewise, with Christ, we are called to have an undivided loyalty to him. When you are drafted, you are now committed to the success of your new team. You want to see your team win games. You want to see them work well together. You want to see your team win your division, go to the Super Bowl, win the Super Bowl. When you're drafted, you're to have a resolute, a resolved determination to your team's success. Likewise, with Christ, we are to have an undivided loyalty to him. His mission, his will, his team, his family, his glory. Listen, the Bible, and you know this, repeatedly warns and speaks against the double-minded man. The man who tries to love Christ and love the world. The man who tries to love God and love money. The man who tries to love Christ and who tries to love his secret sin. This man is in reality self-deceived. He is lying to himself and to God. Because Jesus said in Matthew 6, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. No one can be devoted to two masters. He must choose, and you must choose. Now, if you have your Bibles, please turn to 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. This is kind of an obscure story. Uh, But it illustrates the very point about the disease and the deadly nature of being double-minded. In 2 Kings chapter 5, we have the story of a man named Naaman coming to find the prophet Elisha. 
Naaman was not just your average guy. He was actually the commander of the Syrian army. They were the enemies of Israel. And during one of their raids on Israel, the Syrians had taken captive a young Jewish girl who eventually came to work as a servant for Naaman's wife. Now, here's the deal. Naaman, as you know, somehow contracted the skin disease known as leprosy. His whole body was diseased. It would eventually become disfigured. His whole body was made unclean and impure due due to this disease. Now, this young Jewish girl working for Naaman's wife tells her that there is a prophet of God in Israel that could heal him. And eventually this word gets reported to the king of Syria and he sends Naaman along with a whole delegation with money and gifts and silver to seek out this man of God who might heal Naaman. Eventually, Naaman comes to Elisha's house. But as you know, Elisha doesn't even go out to meet him. He doesn't even go out to speak to him and to present himself to him. Instead, Elisha simply sends a messenger out to him saying, go wash in the Jordan River seven times and then your skin, your flesh will be healed of this disease. Now, at first, Naaman is angry. He is furious. In fact, he talks about how they have better rivers back home that he could go wash in and cleanse himself in. But thankfully, one of his servants pulls him aside and says, look, you are a a great and mighty man, and this is a good word that the prophet of God has given you, so why not try it? Why not go and do it? And of course, Naaman does. And he is healed, and his skin is restored to like new, and Naaman is overjoyed, and he returns to Elisha to thank him with with gifts of gold and silver and money, but Elisha refuses all of it. Elisha will take none of it. In fact, Elisha says in verse 16, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. Elisha saw himself as standing before God. Elisha saw himself as one who ministered in God's presence, as serving him, as seeking the reward that comes from faithfulness unto God. And so Elisha doesn't want one penny of Naaman's money. Elisha was not a prophet for hire, like the false prophets of Baal, like the false prophets that Naaman would have been accustomed to. Elisha wanted Naaman to know that he served and loved and worshipped the living God, and he did not do this to make money and get wealthy. Elisha was undivided in his loyalty to God, but Elisha had a servant named Gehazi. I don't know if I'm saying it right, but I'm going to go with Gehazi. All right, Elisha had a servant named Gehazi, and Gehazi saw all of this take place. He saw the offer of money. He saw the offer of wealth. He heard what Elisha said, but he wanted the wealth. He wanted the money. Look at verse 19, 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 19. He, that is Elisha, said to him, that is Naaman, go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman, the Syrian, in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. Now, listen, please remember those words, okay? Those words are filled with irony. As Gehazi says, I will get something from him. He would get something from him, but not what he would, not what he would expect, okay? Read on. Look at verse 21. <clears throat> so Gehazi followed Naaman, and when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, is all well? 
In essence, Naaman is asking, why are you following me? Elisha just sent me on my way, and here I see you chasing after me. What's the story? What's, what's going on? Look at how Gehazi answers. And he said, all is well. My master has sent me to say, there have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim, two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. What is Gehazi doing here? He's lying in order to secure for himself these valuable things. And isn't it ironic the way that Gehazi begins his statement saying, all is well, all is well. All is not well. All is not well because lust and greed has filled his heart. He is a double-minded man. The same greed that filled Achan's heart in Joshua chapter 7 has filled Gehazi's heart. The same lust and deception that filled Ananias and Sapphira's heart in Acts chapter 5 has filled Gehazi's heart. The same betrayal and idolatry that filled Judas's heart has filled Gehazi's heart. All is not well because Gehazi is a double-minded man. And listen, I fear that he's like so many of us. Sometimes trying to please the Lord, sometimes trying to appear as a genuine servant of the Lord, and yet in reality, just trying to please ourselves. Trying to honor the Lord and trying to follow the lusts of our heart. All is not well, because the Holy Spirit says in 1 Timothy 6, those, listen, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Did you hear that? Simply those who desire to be rich, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith, listen, and pierced themselves with many pangs. Did you hear that? Lust, idolatry, the craving for things other than Christ is like a self-inflicted wound. You have pierced yourself. You have damaged yourself. You have harmed yourself. All is not well in Gehazi's heart. And listen, all is not well in many of our hearts because we are too often trying to live a double-minded existence where we play act at serving Christ. Jesus asked a penetrating question in Luke 6. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? In other words, stop calling Christ Lord if you're not going to follow him. If you're not going to obey him, stop calling Christ Lord if you're going to live a hypocritical, double-minded existence following your own flesh. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.11, Listen, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, listen, which wage war against your soul. These, these passions of the flesh that we fight against, it's waging war against your soul. Every day you are at war. See, but here's the problem. When the passions and the desires of the flesh come to you, they don't come saying, I have come to wage war against your soul. They never appear that way. They always show up presenting themselves. I have come to make your life so much better. I have come to solve all your problems. I have come to give you joy and happiness and fulfillment. So who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe the word of God, the apostle Peter, as he writes, saying these desires which conflict with the word of God have in reality come to wage war against your soul? Or are you going to buy the lie 
and believe that they're really going to lead to happiness and joy and contentment and fulfillment. Go back to 2 Kings. Look at verse 23. <clears throat> and Naaman said, because of course Naaman has no idea what's going on. Naaman said, verse 23, Be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver and two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants and they carried them before Gehazi. Now it's interesting, two talents of silver uh, amounted to about 150 pounds of silver. Man, that's a lot of silver. So there is Gehazi uh, marching home with two servants carrying 150 pounds of silver along with the changes of clothes that he had received. And he's got to be feeling pretty good. He succeeded. He's won. He's gotten away with it. So he thinks, look at verse 24. And when he came uh, to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house and sent the men away and they departed. He went in and stood before his master and Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, your servant went nowhere. Now, just as a side note, if you're going to lie to a prophet of God, you should probably have a better story than nowhere. Like, where have you been? Nowhere. Really? Because it looks like you went somewhere. You know, and so here, this is the worst lie ever. But more importantly than acknowledging the bad lie, we should ask the question, why does Elisha even bother asking Gehazi where he's been? Because I'll let you in on a little secret. Elisha already knows. So why does Elisha even bother to float the question? He's giving him an opportunity to confess and to forsake his sin. Peter did this with both Ananias and Sapphira. He gave them both individually the opportunity to confess and forsake their sin. God did this with Achan in Joshua chapter 7, where he very slowly pointed the finger eventually at Achan. And Achan had so much time to confess and to forsake his sin. God is so kind. He is so good. He gives an opportunity for us to repent and to confess our sin. And that's what Gehazi was given. He was given that gift, and yet he chooses to lie to himself and to Elisha and to God. Look at verse 26. But he said to him, this is Elisha speaking, did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and even male servants, uh, male servants and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper like snow. Remember back in verse 20, when Gehazi said, I will get something from Naaman. He got something. All right. He got Naaman's leprosy, his disease, his uncleanness. And it was symbolic of the disease and the uncleanness and the filthiness that was in Gehazi's heart. It was a filthy heart. It was an unclean heart. It was a diseased heart. It was a divided heart, divided between loyalty to God and loyalty to self. James says that a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Paul pleads with the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11, saying, I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you a pure virgin to Christ. And then Paul says, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. What is it that makes the Apostle Paul afraid? The thought that in our thoughts we may be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. We must strive to cultivate in our thinking a sincere love and devotion to Christ. 
What does it mean to be drafted onto Christ's team? It means that we are to have an undivided loyalty to Christ, his mission, his will, his family, his glory. Number three, in the NFL, when you are drafted, you are agreeing to place yourself in submission under the leadership of the coaching staff, especially under the leadership of the head coach. Likewise, we are to follow and submit to our head, the Lord Jesus Christ. James Alder, who has worked as a sports reporter and contributor to ESPN Radio and to the New York Times, defines the role of the head coach as follows. The member of the coaching staff that is responsible for all aspects of the team and is in charge of all other coaches. So when you are drafted onto a team, it is vitally important that you listen to, that you submit to, that you respect the head coach. Now again, the head coach, that is a poor analogy for the Lord Jesus Christ. But to a small degree, it makes the point. To follow Christ is to trust him implicitly, to worship him exclusively, to obey him wholeheartedly. In other words, the call to follow Christ, and you know this, is a call to die to self. David Platt writes in his book, Follow Me, the book that you've received. By the way, I'm be quoting extensively from that book, so you may feel like you've already read the book by the time that we're done with our time together. But it's just to give you a sense and a flavor of the book, and then you can further flesh it out as you read the whole book. But David Platt writes, Scores of men, women, and children have been told that becoming a follower of Jesus simply involves acknowledging certain facts or saying certain words. But this is not true. The call to follow Jesus is not simply an invitation to pray a prayer. It is a summons to lose our lives. And he's right. Jesus said in Luke 9, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross yearly and follow me. Is that what it says? Let him take up his cross monthly. Let us take up his cross weekly. Nope. You know what it says. Let him take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, at first glance, we might think, That sounds bad. That sounds bad, taking up your cross daily. I don't like that. I don't like the thought of losing my life, of taking up my cross. And we might think that until we consider who it is we're following, who it is we are gaining. Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Listen, it is good to come to Jesus. It is good to find rest for your souls. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. It is good to lose my life if I gain Christ. Jesus illustrated this very truth in Matthew 13. He said, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great price went and sold all that he had and bought it. It is worth giving up your life to gain Christ. It is actually a joy to be Christ's slave. And we'll talk more about that in in an upcoming session. Number four on your outline. uh, In the NFL, it's entirely possible that you might be drafted onto one team and then traded to another. But Jesus Christ never loses or trades his people away. 
It's true. In the NFL, you might be drafted onto one team and traded to another or become a free agent and receive a better offer or sign on with another team. This happens all the time. In fact, BleacherReport.com notes that, listen to this, in order to remain with the same team for an entire career, a player must be talented enough to warrant his team retaining him while also being willing to forego the potential of a higher salary gained through free agency. Listen, so if you're going to stay with the same team throughout your entire career, firstly, you have to be good enough, you have to be valuable enough so that they would actually want to retain you. And then secondarily, you have to be willing to forego and ignore and reject other possible better offers that may come your way. Now listen, being in Christ is not at all like that. Okay, it is entirely different to be in Christ. First of all, Jesus never loses. He never trades. He never pawns off any of his people. Jesus said in John 6, 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. I will never cast out. Jesus said in John 10, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So if you are a Christian, you are in Christ's hand. You are in the Father's hand and no one can ever snatch you from them. And listen, also, unlike the NFL, there are no better offers to entertain. Okay, when it comes to Christ and what Christ offers, if we are thinking truly and rightly, there are no other better offers to entertain. To be in Christ is to be a child of God, to be made a co-heir with Christ, to be fully forgiven, to be made perfectly righteous. There is nothing that could ever even begin to compare with this. Jesus says in John 10, the thief comes only to kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. David says in Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So Jesus never trades any of his people. He never loses any of his people to free agency and there are no other better offers to entertain. Number, number five on your outline, in the NFL draft, it's not the players making the decisions, but the general managers of each team. And by the way, I, I think that's true. Am I right? Does anyone know who actually decides what team picks, picks what player? Is it the general manager? I assumed it was. Stephen? I'm, I'm just going to look to you for everything at this point tonight. Is that it? Is this the general manager? Yes and more. Okay, yes and more. Yeah, okay. So it's, it's, a, it's a cacophony of people. All right, so, so we'll, we'll let it ride with that. Let's pretend like it's the general manager. for Okay, so in the NFL draft, it's not the players making the decision as to what team they want to play for. And by the way, wouldn't that be nice, though, if you were a player like, nah, I don't want to play for you. Nah, I want to play for you. But that's not how the draft works. It's just, that's just not reality. I mean... You get drafted, and you don't control uh, what team, am I right, that is right. You get drafted, and you, or do you have the offer, can you turn it down? See, I'm on really sl- thin ice here. Oh, oh, okay, okay, so you're not supposed to do that. Okay, so if you're drafted, uh, you should accept that. Okay, here's the deal. Forget all that. Take this away from it. In Christ, remember this. You did not choose Christ. He chose 
Hugh, he chose. Now, this takes us back to our first point. Who gets the credit for us being in Christ? Who gets the glory for the fact that we're saved, redeemed, that we're brought onto Christ's team? Only God. Before Christ called us to him, gave us eyes to see, gave us ears to hear, the Bible says we are spiritually blind, deaf, and dead. David Platt says it like this. Our problem is not simply that we have made some bad decisions. Our problem is not just that we've messed up. Our problem is not that we are at the very, sorry, he says, our problem is that we are at the very core of our being rebels against God and we are utterly unable to turn to him. This is what the Bible means when it says that we are dead in sin. We have not been saved because we have pursued Christ. He has pursued us. He is the great and gracious initiator of life and salvation. The Bible makes this clear again and again. 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. John six forty four. Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that... That no one may boast. We glorify God because he has chosen to love us and to call us to himself. Lastly, number six, being drafted onto an NFL team is a great honor, but it is an infinitely greater honor to be called by Christ to follow him. An infinitely greater honor. It is an honor to be drafted onto an NFL team. It's an honor that few people will ever experience, but it is an infinitely greater honor to be called by Christ to follow him. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. He is God. There is nothing greater than to know him, to love him, to follow him. David Platt says it very well. He says, Jesus is not some puny religious teacher begging for an invitation from anyone. He is the all-sovereign Lord who deserves submission from everyone. He is worthy of more than church attendance and casual association. He is worthy of total abandonment and supreme adoration. Jesus is the sovereign king and he came looking for us to save us, to rescue us, to die in our place. Remember what Jesus said after he visited Zacchaeus' home and Zacchaeus repented of his sin and believed in Christ. He said, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. David Platt writes, to be a Christian is to be loved by God, pursued by God, and found by God. To be a Christian is to realize that in your sin you were separated from God's presence and you deserved nothing but God's wrath. Yet despite your darkness and in your deadness, his light shone on you and his voice spoke to you, inviting you to follow him. His majesty captivated your soul and his mercy covered your sin. And by his death, he brought you life. Do you know for sure that you are his child? Not ultimately because of any good you have done, any prayers you have prayed, any steps you have taken or boxes you have checked, but solely because of the grace that he has given. It is good to be in Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you again for this time to pause, to stop, to consider how you have loved us and called us to yourself. God, we pray that again you would deepen our understanding, you would help us to see the glory and the goodness of Christ and his saving work. 
Lord, I pray for each man here. If there be any man who does not yet know Christ, who has not yet responded to his call to follow him, we pray that tonight would be the night, that this would be the weekend, that they repent of their sin, that they forsake their former way of life, that they submit and surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Do this for our good and for your glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.